The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. I think over time you see more and more overt attempts by China to limit the kind of research that can be published around the world. So it's up to the vigilance of academia to really preserve this freedom of speech and freedom of thought. When we are collaborating with China, it doesn't matter in what areas or Chinese institutions or individuals, then we, we need to be very clear about our values and about the processes and about how far we want to go and what we want to do. For people I know, I think everyone is pretty clear about that. In this episode, academic freedom under fire in China. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. In December of 2019, one of China's leading institutions for higher learning, Fudan University, made a significant change to its charter. It removed its stated commitment to freedom of thought and instead added a pledge to equip its teachers and employees with Xi Jinping thought. Fudan University, known as a relative bastion of liberal thought among China's universities, hasn't been alone in officially putting the Communist Party's interests above all else. Nanjing University and Shanxi Normal University have also recently formalised their allegiance to party doctrine, and more institutions are expected to follow. China has been tightening controls on the internet and civil society since Xi Jinping assumed the presidency in 2012. So perhaps it was inevitable university and college campuses would also be targeted. So to what extent does politics intersect with higher learning and academic research in Xi Jinping's China? Does the party expect academics and the knowledge they produce to bend to its ideological will? And how is the rest of the world to respond? Joining us to discuss the new authoritarian tilt on China's campuses, we're joined by China political scientists and Ear to Asia regulars, Dr Delia Lin and Dr Saoki Tok, both from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to both of you. Hello, Ali. Hello, Ali. If we can start by getting a sense of what's been lost... How important was this commitment to freedom of thought in the charter of these universities as both a protection and, I guess, Delia, also an incentive for academics? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important because Fudan University is known, as you said in your introduction, is known to be a university that promotes freedom of thought and also freedom of speech and intellectual um, independence. Um, and also Fudan University is the first university in China that was established by the Chinese themselves and was set up in 1903 from memory. Um, And uh, it's basically built into the spirit of the university uh, that academic independence is important. At the same time, Salkit, if I can put this to you, is it uh, when you look at that, that phrase, freedom of thought, has it been merely symbolic? We aren't dealing with an authoritarian state. I think it's more than symbolic. Freedom of thought is absolutely cardinal to academic 
enterprises. Without that, you really can't advance knowledge and what we like to think as advancing, you know, the mankind, the way that we think, the way that we understand the world around us. So in this case, by acknowledging or removing it, I thought it was pretty significant. Does it mean the same freedom of thought in China as it does in the West? That's a good question. Um, Freedom of thought is something that is more important than the freedom of expression, I'll put it that way. Freedom of thought really is the emancipation of the mind that allows to think about you know, things that otherwise people wouldn't have thought about. But in terms of freedom of expression, you have to think before you can talk about it, So, or, or even express it in writing or in other ways. So in this case, I thought the um, freedom of thought itself is really a kind of signature for, for authoritarian, in, in fact, totalitarian type of approach. Because Delia, when you think of thought, it, it goes to the soul, doesn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. It goes to the mind and the soul. It means a lot. And we also need to look at not just the history of the university itself, but also look at the history of university charter, drafting university charter in China. And I found it really ironic. This revision is very ironic because Chinese universities for a long time have been pushing back drafting university charters. They didn't want that. But Ministry of Education wanted it. So the kind of initiation of drafting the university charter started in 1992. By October 2015, only 114 universities pushed by the Ministry of Education. And mind you, in China, there were more than 2,600 universities drafted the university charter. One of the reasons to reject drafting university charters because they couldn't see the sense of doing it, because they were angry, it's kind of resistant to the government, because they were they were not happy. There was too much party administration within the university. And uh, they didn't think a charter is going to help them to gain more independence. But the government's purpose for asking the university to draft a charter is exactly wanting to give them more freedom so that they would be governed by this charter drafted by themselves and in the end approved by the Ministry of Education. But, so the, but in the end, that's not... But it was the opposite now. So the purpose of drafting universal charters is in Chinese it's called de-administrationization. Uh, it de-administrationization. It's that a decentralization. To, it's decentralization so that universities are not governed by party administrators but are governed by professors, by academics, by themselves. That was the purpose of drafting these university charters. But the universities pushed back because they didn't see that's going to really happen. They didn't trust, they didn't believe that university charters would actually give them more freedom. So they were not really interested in drafting one. So it's very interesting to see that the purpose of the charter actually shifted from uh, reducing party administration to in today's time be an instrument for fortifying party leadership. I also have one more thing to add to that. The backdrop to all this development is the expansion of higher education in China and the Americanization of universities. They apply American standards to Chinese universities and uh, as part of the whole reform project, they have to introduce something called a charter. University administrators or professors by large saw that the whole endeavor was just a hypocrisy. And they were very reluctant to get on with things because they're afraid that if once the charter was written, they were governed by it and uh, they'll rather not have it. So it's easier to... to Maneuver. Yeah, Yeah. it's uh, easier to to maneuver. 
And so does that mean that now with that change to the Charter, that ability to manoeuvre those unspoken restrictions, if you like, that that window has narrowed or that ability has just become slightly less? Yeah, I see it that way. Now, in the West, we tend to see Charter as something that's, you know, behavioural, principles that we want to enshrine within the academic profession. Whereas in China, there is a political element to the charter. Actually, the charter is very comprehensive as well. It's very long. <laughs> Unlike our charter, very short. But uh, but in China, all the university charters are very long. And it goes to the detail of the institutionalization of yeah. the university as well. So in the end, it becomes more constraining than liberating. So, so for people who don't know, what, what is Xi Jinping thought? And if it's being uh, used in, in education, what does that actually mean? Xi Jinping thought is very broad and it covers really a lot of aspects. And it's really difficult to summarise what it really means because it does cover a lot of things. But what's most important here is party leadership. That's considered as number one under Xi Jinping thought. And we really need to look at the 11th Party Congress that uh, was held in October 2017. And I believe that that's where the game change starts. Because after this Party Congress, uh, then party leadership, uh, party leads all, was written in the party constitution. And this change in the party constitution uh, was more than symbolic. The impact uh, was very profound because that changes uh, the way uh, that education, the way the law even is um, uh, formulated in China. With, with the party at the centre of everything? Of everything. Because right up till the early 2010s, the trend, the bigger trend within uh, Chinese political reform has been one that's moving towards greater decentralization and greater separation of politics and administration, state administration. As Delia was saying, with that's the charters right. being aimed originally at that. That's yeah. right, absolutely. So the whole point here is really that what Delia said is a reversing of that trend okay, towards greater party leadership and and it elevates party above the state. Yeah, exactly. So this revision, recent revisions to the university charter is really a part of that big story. So does that mean that as a as an academic, as a researcher, you now your first port of call under Xi Jinping thought is what does this mean for the party? Exactly. Yes. And how party sees my research, whether my research is going to serve the party. So do you think the changes at Fudan will have a broader implication on academics beyond Fudan. Well, certainly it sets an example of how far you can go in revising your university charter. Other universities, including Nanjing University, Shanxi, Normal University, Renmin University, they've added, uh, not all of them have added Xi Jinping thought, I believe Nanjing University has. Shanxi, Normal University did not add Xi Jinping thought into the revision to their charter. But they took out the freedom of thought. They took out freedom of thought. But Fudan University made more substantial changes than that, and to the to the great detail. Do, do you ma- think they did it off their own bat, or do you think they read the tea leaves, or...? Um, very good question, and um, we, we don't know what the inside story is, but I'm sure that there was a negotiation. But another interesting thing that has happened at Chinese universities is that a lot of universities have changed its general party secretary. So I think the extent to which the university charter has changed has a lot to do with the governing style of the new general 
party secretary, who is number one now. Uh, before it was the president, now it's the general party secretary, who is uh, the number one leader of the university. So Fudan University had its new general party secretary in 2016, and she had no experience in higher education, but she had extensive experience in party administration. And she's known uh, to be a hardcore party follower and has implemented, if we look at even just a Fudan University before I came, but look at Fudan University websites. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't compare it to the previous website, but now it's very clear. The website is all about party leadership. And so, Sarkit, is that all about uh, limiting academic freedom? Yes, I, I think it is. Um, I see the process of uh, removing the term freedom of thought more significant than having it there in the first place or not mentioning it in the first place. Because the process of removing it, you are sending a very clear signal out that this is not something that we want. This is not really... or We're we're removing it. Yeah, we're removing it. So it's like this is not encouraged. And this is deliberate. This This is all after very careful thought that phrase needs to be removed. So that's a very important signal. Yeah. So um, they could have a charter without mentioning it, but the process of removing it really is a very strong signal to all academics, to all students out there that this is something that is out of bounds in future. So for me, including Xi Jinping taught, that is probably part of the bigger trend anyway. Okay, That's everywhere. pretty standard practice. It's but. a standard practice. Um, you can resist it, but it's not a matter of if you do it, but when you do it. I'll put it that way. So removing the freedom of thought, does it mean that, that we will see academics uh, not tackling vast areas of research, of uh, being more prone to self-censorship? Will we see more academics focus on maybe less vulnerable areas like science and technology rather than humanities? Will that be the long-run implication? Well, I think it's more profound than that. Um, it's not just about more people just doing science and um, safer uh, subjects. Safe, safe mm-hmm. subjects and, and certainly less people would be willing to do humanities if they, if they feel that uh, they do have their views. Uh, they would feel that there was absolutely no point in doing any humanities or any philosophy because they knew that there wouldn't be any philosophy of humanities if they themselves have got a creative mind. So it would those individuals that would go for more practical subjects and disciplines, I think that that could be the trend. But I think what's also significant from education perspective is that this new charter would then change uh, the way that even science is taught, uh, what knowledge really means and what kind of knowledge can be talked about and then what kind of information can be given. And also we just talk about the windows becoming more and more the narrow. The window for maneuvering. maneuvering. And it's becoming more and more smaller. Because China has always been an authoritarian state and there's always been restrictions as to what you can say. But then previously there was more room for maneuvering. There were, there were many ways of, especially without the charter, then there were many ways of doing things that you would get away with. But now it's getting harder and harder. But we also have to give credit to academics, entrepreneurs who are able to really work along very tight borders. Mm. I mean, in the totalitarian era of Mao, for example, there were research done that totally went against what the uh, party line would dictate them to do. And uh, some of those research didn't really surface until the 1980s or 90s. I'll give you one example, which is uh, the project that uh, Dili and I are doing on Nanjing 
massacre. The issue of Nanjing massacre was raised in the 1950s. Okay, there were a small group of historians and anthropologists who were working on it, but because of political environment, they didn't want those work published. Doesn't stop them from doing those research, and those materials that they have gathered in the 1960s and 70s became foundational to the subsequent expansion of、uh, Nanjing Massacre studies in the 1980s onwards.、Mm. So, so you're saying that that you can work around it if you're particularly, I suppose, you've got to be very good at that and work out where the boundaries are. But that means that you quite possibly they wouldn't be published, or it would be something that would not be well publicised. That's right. So, how does this restriction fit with the leadership's attempts to boost China's global competitiveness, to increase、uh, the innovativeness of the country? Because it does essentially seem to be contradictory to put academics in a box and then ask them to think outside the box. In terms of competitiveness, it does pour sand into、uh, China's ways of innovation and things. But within those fields that the CCP has identified as Priorities. I think China will still steam ahead and become very, very competitive around the world. I'll put it this way: you know, you don't expect China's innovation to be as comprehensive as it would be. But in certain niche areas, I think they will still do very well.、Um, you don't think that fundamentally you need to have freedom of thought in order to create innovation and and have people who can think in a way that. Is new and different. As an academic, I respect my fellow academics for able to perform what they're supposed to do. Censorship is not something that's unique to China. Even in the West, we have certain form of censorship. We call it political correctness, or we call it something else. But in China's case, we have to also understand that scholars have been working within a very constrained environment for thousands of years. And that's the point that Delia was making. But Delia, do you see a contradiction by this seeming attempt to put academics in a box and then ask them to? Think outside it. I think absolutely there is a contradiction, and a lot of Chinese academics have been arguing that it's very difficult to work within this restriction, and asking the reasons why there were so few Nobel Prize winners in China,、uh, why there were so few real innovations.、Uh, there were a lot of talents in China, and、uh, Salke points out they're working very hard. If they really are passionate and believe in what they are doing, they're working everything they can to push the boundaries and、uh, to make their research. Outcomes heard. Now everyone is talking about Wuhan coronavirus. Just recently, on social media,、um, this story of Professor、uh, Gao Fu, who is the director of disease control and prevention in China,、um, who is a fantastic scholar, and he is blamed for not、uh, having reported to the public that the virus can be transmitted. From person to person, but a lot of netizens have found out that's not true because he was told not to say this. He's not allowed to say this aloud. But still, he's a scientist. From a scientific perspective, he needs to say this. So what he did is he published an article with International Journal that was published. He actually did say that it can be transmitted from person to person. So he did his duty as a scientist. But then, as a scientist. Within China, there were things he could not say. Yeah, he published in Science, didn't he? Yes, and and it was it predated the announcement of the virus in the very first place. So that's right. That was very significant. It, it yeah, and he was hoping that、um, by doing that, then 
somehow this message would actually come back to China through the West. It really does illustrate the point yeah. very well, doesn't it? You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Asia Institute political scientists Dr. Saoki Tok and Dr. Delia Lin. We're talking about the tightening of controls around academic and research freedoms in China. And just that point of international publication uh, and the route that was taken in this case, I suppose there is a bigger question around that, and that is the the credibility of Chinese research globally when you have changes like we've seen at Fudan. Uh, Salkid, if I can put this to you, do you see uh, a bigger picture issue of how the world looks at China's research programs? Absolutely. I think there is a bigger issue out there. But first, I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of very good researchers in China today uh, working really hard trying to get uh, groundbreaking research out. But the system is under tremendous pressure because of uh, the political environment. Not just that, but the structural issues within the academia is just right, okay, in terms of funding, in terms of disciplines and etc. And collaboration, collaboration as well. But, but don't you get to a situation where regardless of the abilities of a domestic Chinese researcher to do a terrific job, you know, and overcome the obstacles, that the West or the rest of the world will still have a particular view of what's produced because they're looking at the system and, and putting their own lens on the what they perceive the pressures will be. Yep, I think so. Um, I can't say too much of what the others say, but for me, whenever I look at a Chinese publication, I'll definitely take a close look, very critical about it, and look at how it's been written. I'll just flip to the conclusion of the, of the article. It's very easy to discern whether it's a good article or bad, is that if they attempt to produce too many policy suggestions then no, I, I don't think that's a good article. The reason is being... Is that across the board or just with Chinese research? I just with Chinese research because that is where the whole Xi Jinping thing comes in. The Xi Jinping thought, the, the way that they connect their research with whatever political thought that they want to link up to is really to, to draw those references to what the country wants them to do. So uh, why is whatever technology or whatever science breakthrough that they have found relevant to the current political climate, you know, that kind of things. The more important thing here really is that the science, whatever discovery is being done. I think those are the things that we need to take note of. Then there are also quite a number of articles and research out there, published ones, that are really just subpar because of the uh, publishing enterprise within China itself. Is it easier to get published domestically than it is internationally? Yes and no. It's easier to get published domestically if you know the right people. So there's a lot of guanxi thing network within the it's publishing. It's a very different game. Are, are you as, as cynical as Salkit is about... I have to agree with Salkit on that because I work on a lot of Chinese publications. And I think because the general public or the general academia would, would be looking at publications we have a lot of personal contact conversations with scholars and we know that there are a lot of them who are working really hard and who have great ideas but it doesn't mean that they're able to publish those ideas whereas the kind of perception that the West gets general perception is from what they can see out there um, 
very few people would have opportunities to work closely with the Chinese scholars. Uh, and also because I work on a lot of Chinese publications, I do look at them. But the main purpose for me to look at Chinese publications is to look at the information that is given in it. Uh, the argument um, usually is towing the party line and the articulation is made around Xi Jinping thought. Uh, that's expected, but I'm interested in the, the specific information. That's where I find the value. The data. The data. That's what I find find interesting. So so you would say there is already a particular Chinese brand of research, if you like. And as China grows, does that have global implications? I think a lot, huge, on different levels. So as China grows with this limitation to freedom of thought and freedom of expression, it's getting increasingly harder to establish international collaboration with the Chinese scholars, and we always need to take into account their position and how they are able to collaborate. But also, because this Chinese model is becoming more and more salient and explicit, some Chinese academics do think that's the correct way of doing research. This is the way of viewing China. So it's getting more difficult, even if they come overseas, because international collaboration hasn't stopped. Um, and we have, we've got so many Chinese scholars and Chinese students coming out of China, even increasingly more. And China is putting so much money to the academics, encouraging them to go overseas. But it doesn't mean that when they go overseas, that they see a different ways of doing academic work than they appreciate it. It doesn't mean that. Some of them appreciate the way that we do research here, but some of them don't think that we are doing good research because... Uh, because, because they come from a China model. They come from China model and they come from different perspectives. And they believe in the China They believe model. in the China say, well, you, you just don't know about China. You just don't know China. You've been out China for too long. You don't know China. But some of them will say you actually know China better because you see China from outside in. But some will say, well, you just don't know China. So but if you look at that, that China model and what its implications could be globally... How keen and indeed overt is China about influencing global education programs and global research? And I'm thinking here of of the very specific example of Cambridge University Press, who had a China publication and the government uh, demanded that they remove or delete hundreds of articles and book reviews about Tiananmen Square and, and the Cultural Revolution. Cambridge University Press complied and then there was a massive international outcry and those articles and those research papers and reviews were reinstated. Um, I, I guess on the one hand, terribly concerning that they complied, on the other hand, uh, gratifying that there was global outrage. But do you see that, Salkeet, as a trend? I see that as a trend, yes. I think over time you see more and more overt attempts by China to limit the kind of research that can be published or is published around the world. Um, not used, just in China. Yeah, not just in China. It used to be that, you know, if you publish in Chinese, you need to toe the party line. You don't publish in Chinese, you don't have to. You know, we are not concerned about publishing in English because the Chinese Communist Party is not going to read our work anyway. But the Cambridge University Press incident shows that um, the reach of the CCP is far greater than we expect. And that is 
probably going to happen again. So it's up to the uh, vigilance of academia to really preserve this uh, freedom of speech and freedom of thought. Um, But you know, when there's so much money involved and academics need money to do their research and often it's short and and, and if it is being offered, then does that compromise people? I think the thing is we are already looking at commercialization of the academia in a very big scale. Look at what's happening in the States, over here in Australia, and elsewhere in the world. American model is really a a capitalist model for education. Uh, I'm speaking from a liberal perspective, not from a communist perspective. And even China is copying this now, you see. And at the end of it is the publishing houses, even in the West, are running on a capitalist model. They only publish articles because they are profitable. They publish books because they are profitable. All right. And if I have to reach out to the 1.4 billion Chinese market, I better do what the CCP wants me to do. So it's something that is already happening. And uh, CCP is also encouraging foreign researchers to join hands, collaborate with uh, Chinese researchers to work on the list of topics that China is interested in. For example, like Belt Road Initiative and you know even Xi Jinping talks and stuff like that. But this will be the challenge, won't it? I mean, I, I note that Human Rights Watch has actually uh, put out a code of conduct, which is for academic institutions to use when they're dealing with China. But the challenge will be that if China sees a particular way of doing things and China wishes that the rest of the world saw that way as well, if the rest of the world is still prepared to take the money and accept the research project and agree to the collaboration, then China's job has just been made a lot easier. Absolutely. Uh, This commercialisation of education has made it really difficult for any academics to uh, stand up for their principles or for their values and assess who they collaborate with and how they collaborate, Um, and not just academics, but also institutions as well. And we're talking about not just publishing houses, but also universities as well. So that's definitely a challenge education in the West has not faced before. It's unprecedented. So so do you not collaborate with China? I mean, and how is that even possible given the vast swathe of research and they're building universities by the week to meet growing demand? How does one deal with this? I I trust academic minds and the academic creed to be able to really sidestep all these constraints that's being put to them. And I will still collaborate with Chinese scholars, but I'll make sure that I only work with those people who think along the same frequency as I do. You know, not someone who, who really goes the other way around and we can't really talk about issues together or critically. Um, it takes a little bit of uh, mischievous uh, thinking, which is very much inbuilt into my brain. Is like, we will toe the line, but we will make cheeky statements here and there just to do not to test the waters but to really say what we want to say i mean academics are trained in, in to a do way, that in a way it's creativity as well yeah it's and, creativity and sometimes it's fun to do it but of course we choose who we work with and also at the same time we need to be mindful of the restrictions they're under and make this very open especially if we are working on some sensitive topics, then we'll make it very clear um, and also make sure that those academics are protected, uh, that uh, we will not 
pose any danger or any risks to them. So there's always risk assessment uh, that we do ourselves as well. But in many ways, I guess, from a global point of view, the changes in Chinese academia and and academic freedoms is no different to the the challenges posed by China in so many other areas, for example, economic areas and the constant debate in Australia about the extent to which we are interlinked and, and dependent, that you have to judge, you know, where you're values and and where your position is and how you are prepared to interact as opposed to just saying either we accept it all or we don't accept it all. I think so. I think it's really an an age that we need to be very clear about our own values. And so when we are collaborating with China, it doesn't matter in what areas or Chinese institutions or individuals, then we we need to be very clear about our values and about the processes and about uh, how far we want to go and what we want to do. For people I know, I think everyone is pretty clear about that. You're absolutely right. We don't think of the whole situation as a binary situation. To think of it that way, you are really underestimating the agency of academic circles worldwide. Um, There is a very dynamic process. I think academics being who they are will be trying to find that grey area, no matter how narrow it is, they'll find that grey area and try to maximise what they can do within that grey area. So it's uh, beyond that black and white that is the one that we are looking at, really. You made the point, Sarkeet, at the beginning of this interview that the the key was not so much even that freedom of thought was there as a phrase in these charters, but more that it has now been taken away. So looking ahead, can you ever see a day or, or a catalyst for that to be put back? Or now it has been taken out, it is out forever? I think... There is no chance of it putting back. It takes generations. Um, But then again, generations later, the political climate could change. Hopefully, whoever is working within Chinese universities and with Chinese uh, institutes still hold to that creed that, you know, freedom of thought is absolutely fundamental to what we are doing. And there is no fear of that being removed at all. Yeah, I don't think it's a matter of time that in time that this will be put back. I think this change is fundamental. And to ask for a change back, it requires another fundamental change. It's not uh, about time or after a few generations and finally people realise how important freedom of thought is. Um, people know that freedom of thought is important. But as Saki points out, removing it from the university charter is a fundamental change. And then putting it back again, it's a very strong voice. So at the moment in today's political climate, there's no such context. There's no such an environment where you can actually put it back. Do you think that will change one day? Well, let's put it that way. Nothing stays the same, right, all the time. Change is constant. Change always happens. That's a a good way to end it because we certainly don't know what is going to happen, but uh, it's been absolutely fascinating to listen to the two of you. Thank you so much for joining Ear to Asia. Thank you, Delia. Thank you, Ali. And thank you, Saki. Thank you. Our guests have been political scientists Dr Sarkeet Tok and Dr Delia Lin of Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. 
Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 31st of January 2020. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.